The National Archives podcast series, The Post Office Tower, Symbol of a New Britain, presented by Mark Dunton. Thank you for coming, everyone. The Post Office Tower, Symbol of a New Britain. But notice I have actually placed a question mark there because I'm not necessarily saying it was. You know, I'm just raising a slight question mark. When the Post Office Tower was officially opened on the 8th of October 1965, it was Britain's tallest building. It was also seen as symbolising a new, exciting technological revolution and a new spirit of optimism, um, as it, and it successfully captured the public's imagination. And as such, I thought it would make an excellent subject for a talk and a way of highlighting the rich diversity of the holdings of the National Archives, which I'm going to draw on extensively with some stunning photographs in particular. Here's what I'm planning to cover in this talk. Why was the tower built in the first place? Then I'm going to move on to some issues which started emerging regarding the cost, which started to uh, spiral upwards. We're going to look at some aspects to do with the construction, but we won't get too technical, okay? We're going to look at the structure, the opening ceremonies, the commercial success, have a look at that, plus a bit of a look at the whole kind of white heat scientific revolution sort of ethos of the, of the early to mid-60s. I'm going to just also touch a bit on the, uh, the post office tower in popular culture because it's rather amazing it did make quite a lot of contributions to popular culture. And also the rather grimmer subject of the 1971 bombing. And then we'll finish up by just looking at the uh, post office tower as it is today, BT Tower, and also some concluding remarks. In the words of a um, general post office uh, GPO publicity leaflet, the post office tower rose like a giant lighthouse above the London streets. It became a major landmark on the skyline of Britain. Of course, there wasn't any uh, competition from um, skyscrapers in the... uh, in the 60s, really, uh, and it soon became uh, an instantly recognisable signpost for pilots flying into London. It had a total height of 620 feet, including a 40-foot mast. Why was it so tall? Indeed, why was it built in the first place? Well, the short answer to this question is that the tower was built to provide more long-distance telephone circuits and more television channels. I'm going to refer briefly to trunk telephone networks, but as I've said earlier, don't worry, I'm not going to get too technical, but it's just to explain that, because not everybody may know this, a trunk line means a circuit connecting telephone switchboards or other kind of switching equipment. Essentially, it means the wiring of telephones to local, uh, local telephone exchanges, rather than being wired individually. In the 1950s and 60s, there was a huge expansion of trunk telephone and television networks between London and the provinces. Also, more channels were required to extend the BBC2 625 line service and also to enable the introduction of colour television. Of course, there was a time when all these things were a novelty. The traditional method for relaying telephone calls and TV channels was to lay underground cables. Um, But it would have been very costly and difficult to lay multiple cables into the heart of London. 
the post office started to turn their efforts to an alternative solution of erecting a radio tower in the centre of London, tall enough so that the beams would not be blocked by existing buildings. It would use microwave radio channels to carry telephone calls and TV programmes. Microwave means um, high-frequency radio waves in this context. I think it's not necessarily quite the same as your microwave in your kitchen that I'm talking about. In 1960, the post office made its case to the Treasury and the financial argument that this solution would be considerably cheaper than cabling won the day. Similar towers had been constructed in Stuttgart and Dortmund, Germany, but the post office tower was intended to showcase some new features. Now, the tower was intended to replace a considerably shorter steel lattice tower which had been built on the roof of what was known as the Museum Telephone Exchange, which was located off the Tottenham Court Road in the late 1940s, Uh, That's when that was built, to provide a television link between London and Birmingham. The tower was going to be designed by the Ministry of Public Building and Works. It was designed by a team led by G.R. Yates under the direction of Eric Bedford, Chief Architect of the Ministry of Public Buildings and Works. Now, much of the research in the early days, um, such as wind tunnel tests, was carried out at the National Physical Laboratory in Teddington. And this photograph shows an early prototype model of the tower which originated from that National Physical Laboratory in Teddington. And here's another example of a model of the tower as it starts to take shape. A further illustration of a model of the radio tower. That's what it was called, I think, at the early stages and the four-storey extension of the museum telephone exchange here. Okay, so I suppose that must be the old museum represented there. The old. Now we move on to issues surrounding the cost. Yeah. The files uh, held by the National Archives show mounting concerns about the spiralling costs of the project. Quoting from a memo of the 10th of March 1965 by B.J. Farmer, who was a senior auditor of the Exchequer and Audit Department, reference AO 27-44, the estimated cost for the whole project of the museum extension and tower was, at that stage, in March 65, it was 965,000. But this figure was revised steadily upwards, and the final cost was in the region of 2.5 million. Factors behind this increase include some changes in the design of the tower, especially the addition of a collar that was wrapped around it, additional public access provision, and an increase in building costs and delays caused by bad weather. B.J. Farmer writes dryly, The story of the execution of the project, however, is the familiar one of large excesses over estimates and inability to plan in advance. But, he does go on to say, despite the apparently high costs and the loose control, I think that the PO, the post office, could easily defend the project as a satisfactory solution to an urgent and difficult operational problem. It's implied that the alternative of using cabling, as I've mentioned before, would have been more expensive and less practical.
construction. The principal building contractors were Peter Lind and Co., and construction began in June 1961. Dominic Sandbrook describes the tower in an admirably concise manner as a narrow piercing cylinder of glass and steel. The other element was concrete, and there was quite a lot of that. The aerials that would be uh, fixed to the tower could not be allowed to move, well, no more than the slightest movement. Otherwise, there would be a significant loss of signal power. So, maximum stability was crucial. As H. Sharp, a senior auditor, described it in a memo, the tower is built around a hollow shaft which varies in diameter from 22 foot at the top to 35 foot at the base. Um, The base rests on a 90-foot square, 3-foot thick concrete raft sunk 24 feet below ground level. Well, now we're going to look at the structure. Quoting again from a GPO publicity leaflet, besides its strictly functional use, the tower will add to the itinerary of London's attractions. The public will be able to view the panorama of London from galleries near the top of the tower. Two lifts, each travelling at 1,000 feet a minute, will carry passengers to the three public observation platforms. In addition, um, there will be a public revolving restaurant and a cocktail lounge near the summit. And um, it it says in the publicity leaflet that the restaurant will make between two and three complete revolutions every hour. Catering for the Tower Restaurant has been undertaken by Butlin's Holidays Limited. <laughs> with the revolving restaurant, the idea with that was that the, uh, the outside area rotated around a central core. Yeah? So I think the central core remained static, but there was a sort of ring that went around it that was revolving. On now to the opening ceremonies. Now, there were several of these. The first isn't really an opening ceremony, but I'm including it anyway. You can easily understand how government ministers would want to associate themselves with such a prestigious project. The first ceremony was the traditional topping out ceremony. Um, That's a builder's right to mark a milestone in the construction of a building. This occurred on the 15th of July 1964. By this time, the tower had reached its highest point and the Minister of Works, Geoffrey Rippon, and this is uh, still a Conservative government in power at the time, he poured the last skip of concrete and smoothed it out with a silver trowel. Here they are again, uh, drinking a toast in beer to the, the tower. Now, the tower was operationally opened on the 8th of October 1965 by Prime Minister Harold Wilson, who tested the new equipment by making an inaugural phone call to the Lord Mayor of Birmingham. He unveiled a plaque near the entrance and, uh, and then Wilson and his entourage took a lift to the observation gallery for a view of London some 540 feet below. In his diary entry, Tony Benn recorded that it was so misty we could hardly see anything at all. <laughs> so Billy Butlin and Tony Benn joined forces on May the 19th, 1966 to open the Top of the Tower restaurant, a bizarre combination, if ever there was. 
Dominic Sandbrook mentions Ben and Butlin <laughs> gamely tucking into prawn cocktails and T-bone steaks for the benefit of the cameras. Her Majesty the Queen visited on the 17th of May 1966 and took tea with Tony Ben and Billy Butlin in his revolving restaurant. According to his diary entry, Ben suggested to the Queen that, quote, there ought to be a state banquet in which all the guests went by the top table every 20 minutes. <laughs> um, sorry, Tony Ben presented the Queen with a gold replica of a model of the tower. Commercial success. Some more detail now about the commercial aspects of the tower with a closer look um, at the top of the tower restaurant. Um, an article in the Times of the 10th of May 1967 stated, Sir Billy Butlin is doing well at the top of the GPO tower. It makes him sound like he was always up there, doesn't it? Tomorrow he expects to see the 100,000th diner spend about £4.10 shillings in his 120-seat restaurant opened just over a year ago. And that's probably still quite a sizable sum of money for the time. Um, <laughs> Diners were even entitled to a certificate of orbit, uh, it seems. Yes, that would be something to treasure. Um, now, the GPO were quick to see the commercial possibilities. They could recoup some of their costs through admission charges, which at one point were proposed to be four shillings for adults. Um, but in May 67, they were ordered to one shilling sixpence per adult and ninepence per child under 14 years of age. Um, visitors could purchase a whole range of items in the tower shop, including a model of the tower, a guidebook, special wallets, key rings, glassware. <laughs> um, in a memo dated uh, 7th of December 67, H. Sharp, the senior auditor, reports that the details of the first year's trading at the post office tower have now been collated. Well over one million people visited the tower during the period and a very satisfactory re return on capital of 37% was made. Other sources of revenue, i.e. shops, restaurants, binoculars, etc., were also extremely profitable. And it was an obvious choice for a stamp. So, you know, really, you can see the post office tower was an immediate hit with the public. It succeeded in capturing their imagination as well. And I'd now like to look at how it fitted in with the mood of the early to mid-60s. As Dominic Sandbrook, the brilliant chronicler of post-war Britain, puts it, uh, the success of the post office tower as an iconic tourist attraction owed a great deal to the contemporary enthusiasm for science and technology. Howard Wilson caught this mood most adroitly with his famous speech to the Labour Party conference of the 1st of October 63, when he spoke about the Britain that is going to be forged in the white heat of this revolution and the need to think and speak in the language of our scientific age. There was a great deal of emphasis on futurism Television was rapidly expanding and the range of automated products was expanding as well. The Telstar communication satellites had been launched. Um, Yuri Gagarin had made the first man space flight. The space age was upon us. 
Even the Hanna-Barbera cartoon The Jetsons was evidence of this, as were the futuristic sets of Jerry Anderson's Thunderbirds. Again, as Dominic Sandbrook explains, scientific designs were very much in during the 60s. Pots, mugs, jewellery, lampshades, even public buildings like the Post Office Tower in London and the Rotunda in Birmingham, all were heavily based on the clean, confident, geometric shapes that typified the look of the mid-60s. On now to the post office tower and popular culture, just a few examples. In a front-page Dan Dare story in the Eagle of the 23rd of May 1964, Zell, a dangerous alien from another planet, had roused the bored teenagers of London to revolt and made them forcibly take over the GPO tower. Um, according to the, the bubble, somebody is shouting, they're taking up positions in the top restaurant section. But you see, interestingly, that's May 64. I mean, you know, this is even before the official opening. So it just shows you what an impact it's already making, in a way, for it to feature in a children's comic like this. The post office tower featured in Doctor Who, in The War Machines, um, a series of episodes broadcast in June and July 1966, set in contemporary swinging London, with a malevolent computer called Wotan, located at the summit of the post office tower, controlling an army of war machines. Although I gather that some of them were quite easily disabled using rope or something, I I don't know, but uh, anyway. (laughs) And of course, this section would not be complete without reference to the goodies programme Kitten Kong, from 1971, in which a giant kitten called Twinkle goes on the rampage in in London. But on some more serious, much more serious matters now. The 1971 bombing, yeah. So on October the 31st, 1971, a bomb exploded in the post office tower, which caused extensive damage but no injuries. Um, According to the BBC on this day archive, the blast occurred at 04. 40, sorry, 0430 GMT on the 33rd floor of the tower and shortly after the police received a call from a man claiming that the Kilburn Battalion of the IRA was behind the attack. Apparently the bomb, which blew out um, foot-thick walls, was planted in a toilet on the lowest of the public viewing galleries and the damage took two years to repair. The restaurant was closed to the public for security reasons in 1980 and public access to the building ceased in 1981. It is now known as the BT Tower. Um, It's sometimes used for BT corporate events, but there's no public access. Uh, In November 2009, it was reported that the rotating restaurant would be reopened in time for the 2012 London Olympics, but these plans were dropped. The building is now Grade 2 listed. It's still in use, and it it, it is the site of a major UK communications hub, so it still continues with its key purpose. So, in conclusion, I do hope you've enjoyed this talk, which I'm, I'm sure you agree has been enhanced by the wonderful photographs from the National Archives. I think it would be overstating matters to state that the post office tower It symbolised a new Britain, but it was certainly symbolic of a new mood in the early 60s, a new spirit of modernisation, 
uh, a great feeling of enthusiasm and optimism um, attached to new technology. And it's that sort of dynamism and the optimism and confident sense of style which I find very appealing. And there I will stop. Thank you. This talk was recorded on the 27th of February 2014 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright at the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>